This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, September 3rd, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. The emerging conservative nationalism is something both old and new. It recalls a conservatism that was, in short, less tolerant of what it sees as the excesses of individualism. But even for many conservatives, a good bit of the conservative nationalist conversation so far seems misguided. Richard Reich is editor of Law and Liberty. We spoke at his office in Carmel, Indiana, last week. Where do you trace the origins of this thing called national conservatism or conservative nationalism? I prefer conservative nationalism, but I think that the people who are the exponents of it prefer national conservatism. Why? I will never understand. But where, where do you trace well, the origins I've, of it? I would, a couple of places to begin. It's hard to locate proximate cause here. I think I would start at the level of ideas in that, uh, so there point is conservative fusionism has, uh, if not failed, is no longer really effective and can't win national elections anymore. Uh, They can win uh, certain Senate seats, certain congressional districts, uh, certain governorships, but no longer could win presidential elections. And their proof for that was Donald Trump winning states Republicans had not won in you know, several elections, maybe stretching back to Reagan. I haven't done the look, but on Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, Iowa, states like that really came back in under Donald Trump, barely. Uh, but nevertheless, he pulled them over. And if you consider how far he was outspent and what you think would have been a much more effective campaign operation and the press and all of Trump's blunders to have won and to have won those states certainly gives their claim uh, something of some uh, energy and uh, and some stability. It it also I think you have to consider uh, for this this idea of national conservatism. No longer the conservative fusionism thing was working, but also this idea of elites in both parties had converged. I think around a set of issues. Immigration, uh, free trade, uh, security, we forget. Both leaders of the Democratic and Republican parties were largely aligned on foreign policy post-Cold War period in terms of being interventionist. Uh, Maybe they disagreed on when to start shooting, uh, but there wasn't a fundamental uh, disagreement that we shouldn't start shooting uh, at a certain point in many points around the globe. Um, And also, you know, in social issues as well, even if Republicans spoke a certain way about uh, these controversial subjects, abortion, same-sex marriage, gay rights, those sorts of things. They weren't really willing to do much about it, is the view of national conservatism. And I think as a descriptive matter, they're probably correct on a number of those points. And that really, I think, galvanized them uh, and and their movement. Is that that part of why there is this, uh, I won't say rejection, but a certain animosity for people like Ronald Reagan among these uh, national conservatives. Well, I haven't. Now, when you you have to tell me more about well, that. The, I mean, the what, biggest what you, instance I have would be you know Henry Olson, the now Washington Post columnist, maybe one of the first conservative political analysts to call Donald Trump and say, "I think Donald Trump will win the Republican nomination." He was one of the first to do that. He wrote a book, sort of, I think, realigning Ronald Reagan more in the mold of a conservative New Deal type thinker, and not uh, someone as we think of him, a more, uh, you know, more free market oriented, small government oriented. So when I think of Ronald Reagan, I think uh, broad appeal to uh, religious conservatives, 
uh, a broad appeal to libertarians in a lot of ways for the, the you know advocating for free markets, for uh, open immigration. The United States is a beacon. Uh, it's there's a door, but it's open. Yes. Uh, that sort of thing for with re- respect to immigration, relatively low taxes, that sort of thing. But it seems that a whole lot of what seem to be core Republican ideas, a lot of a lot of which are rooted in libertarianism. Um, it seems that that a lot of these national conservatives are rejecting a huge chunk of what. Reagan came into office and what he expounded as president. Well, I think yeah, so maybe indirectly when I read so the the statement that was put out by First Things against the dead consensus and which had a number of signers uh who have who seem to be moving in the national conservative movement uh circles. So what is that? Uh, I guess against against the dead consensus would be a repudiation of fusionist conservatism that you're describing that Ronald Reagan, I think, brought into being, maybe Goldwater, but Reagan was the one to win elections and and do something with it. Um, yeah, it's. I think it is a rejection of free markets. You saw that at the National Conservatism Conference, there was a lot of criticism of the market per se and a lot of belief. Uh, I mean, you know, of course, in industrial policy and uh, having more protectionist type moves in the market and having the government, it seems that if we look at sort of the, the deaths of despair, so-called, or a lot of social dysfunctionality in different parts of the country, a belief that it's time for the federal government to tackle that or to somehow make it better, uh, as if that hasn't been attempted by a number of by state, local, and federal governments stretching back for decades. That seems to have been uh, ignored. Uh, so that is definitely at work. And I think, you know, if, if on one level, uh, not that I would criticize Reagan, but we are beyond Reagan now in a certain sense. And there was always this belief of Republican presidents, Republican candidates running for president uh, in the post-Cold War era, always wanting to be like Ronald Reagan or to position themselves as, as the new Ronald Reagan. And so in one sense, that is right. The conservatism has to move beyond Reagan. That necessarily means a wholesale rejection of his governing principles is another matter. Now, uh, you pointed to the election of Donald Trump as president. Does that not indicate sort of just sort of the natural decay of intellectual movements? That is, you have uh, somebody like Ronald Reagan, of course, his predecessor, Barry Goldwater, who uh, Goldwater very clearly represented a a broadly much more libertarian uh, intellectual movement. Reagan won elections with a you know, kinder, gentler version of that. And uh, the fact that Donald Trump has been elected as a Republican president, to me, that just says, well, you know, these things get away from us uh, to the extent that there is an intellectual core. It's, it seems to have faded away. Is that is that wrongheaded? Um, well, you could take it both ways. You could take it your way. Uh, and there's a view uh, and, and there's evidence to support that. Of course, the story the national conservatives would tell is uh, conservatism had itself become too ideological, uh, too programmatic, too committed to sort of, you know, you put your coin in the slot, turn the handle, and out comes conservatism. And so it was no longer thinking. And and it actually, you know, it is interesting too. If you think about after Obama's election, uh, 
there was my memory. I'm interested to hear your take. There was a libertarian moment within conservatism, 2009, 2010. Uh, the way we responded to Obama's election was to sort of recall small government principles. You recall uh, the biography of Calvin Coolidge, the Amity uh, Schley's put out. Well, and it uh, even started before Obama's election, right? Yeah. Shortly before, with the, with uh, TARP. The TARP, which, which was yes. well before uh, a month, I should say, before Obama's election. It's, yeah, and so one one would be we put all of this money. Uh, conservatives put a lot of money into being involved. You know, David Koch just passed away. A lot of money by the Kochs into obviously a lot of philanthropy and a lot of movements like the Institute for Humane Studies. A lot of groups, but they didn't get involved in elections, and there was this push. Uh, I think uh, within Washington conservative circles to really be involved in electioneering. And of course, the national conservative take is, yeah, but you missed everything. You missed where our voters were. And so your so movements do decay and you decayed and we're now the next understanding of conservatism. That's their point. That's the point a Rusty Reno would make, a Tucker Carlson would make, Yoram Hazoni, et cetera. So to what extent are national conservatives, I'm just going to say conservative nationalists. I've called it right here. That's what it's going to be from now on. Uh, to what extent are conservative nationalists articulating a view that they believe goes back to something much older and much deeper and much more rooted in people like Burke and these these much older conservative thinkers? Because it didn't, it didn't necessarily seem like uh, people like Ronald Reagan or uh, the, the Tea Party types were articulating a vision or at least expressing some righteous anger over uh, anything that was really rooted in principle. Well, I think, well, I don't know. From what I remember of the Tea Party movement in its, um, say, period where it was most active, 2009, 2010, um, I remember, you know, there were people, I mean, there was an event here in Indiana. I clearly remember people walking around being photographed with copies of the Constitution in their pocket and really want, reading it and really wanting to recover uh, constitutionalism. And a number of thinkers uh, participated in these events. I mean, you know, friends of mine who are serious uh, thinkers, serious American constitutionalists. So I think there was that part of the Tea Party that wanted to recover uh, that aspect of the Constitution. Now, of course, populist movements are not necessarily well thought out. They're complicated. There's a lot of different contrasting motives and, and ideas going on there. Um, and there I'm, are Opportunists. There are opportunists who, who hop in and <laughs> yes. uh, ride a wave, and then uh, as they're safely ensconced in the uh, confines of a cushy office, they don't necessarily go along with any of the things that got them there. Maybe that, I think I think there's something to that. I off I point back to I my personal opinion. There was a tremendous moment of dissatisfaction amongst a lot of conservatives. Uh, Tea Party types, say social conservative types, not that you could clearly distinguish those, with the Romney-Ryan campaign and the failure of the Romney-Ryan campaign. And then what did you take from that failure? And so there was this famous study by the Republican National Committee that we needed to do um, more centrist type things to win back voters, we need to have an open immigration policy, we need to moderate our social conservatism, all that sort of things. And they're saying, and I think the look back from a lot of conservatives was, well, the Romney-Ryan campaign muted social conservatism, had a very economic conservative, if not libertarian rhetoric, maybe not policy agenda. 
Uh, and, and that didn't work. And we think something else should work. So that we should try other things. And maybe the first instance of that was the victory of Dave Bratt uh, over Eric Cantor in the Republican primary in, in Virginia uh, in a, in a you know, conservative district uh, that, that sent shockwaves, I think, and reminded people of that, maybe not reminded people, but just sh- indicated there may be a change in the electorate. And that was sort of ignored. It's also the case, you can't understand what happened with Donald Trump I think, without Obama, and particularly the way Obama chose to govern the last two years uh, using executive power and the issues he chose to spite the Republican Congress over and to rule, um, if, if, if not uh, in an anti-constitutional and extra-constitutional manner using the administrative state. And I think in a way, Donald Trump was sort of, well, if he's going to do that, this is our guy. And, and he will uh, respond to Obama in a heavy way. And we sort of want someone to bring that on. Now, you, that is uh, at one level uh, dangerous. Uh, populism is always dangerous. But I don't think it was necessarily an incorrect understanding of how people in Washington were willing to govern and, and the response is, well, the people saying, well, then we need to use more muscle to enforce policies that we like. So uh, to the extent conservative nationalists uh, are uh, pushing their view. Uh, it's explicitly with the hope of winning elections and and rejecting a whole lot of libertarian thinking. And so for libertarians like myself or Aaron Powell or Stephanie Slade, who I spoke to recently about uh, national conser- conservative nationalism, uh, w- you know, in our discussion, it was basically, well, what are they? What are they even talking about? With uh-huh. when, because I, I hear this from you, you know, obliquely that uh, these uh, libertarian views have uh, mm-hmm. been influential within Republican circles, and for libertarians who never ever have any hope of ever winning any kind of election. Let's be clear. Uh, the, it's apoplexy. We they we don't understand really that. why that why why it's like we need to declare independence from classical liberalism. We need to declare independence from uh, libertarianism. This is what uh, Yoram Hazoni mm-hmm. said at this at this conference, and I just don't understand what he thinks is the uh, are the policy prescriptions that have been so destructive that have come from libertarians. Yeah, I, I I can't speak uh, necessarily for what Yoram Hazoni. I mean, I've heard you know Rusty Reno, uh, the editor of First Things, was also a major player at the National Conservatism Conference, and you know on a, on a number of occasions, you know, he has said uh, libertarians are about ten thousand voters in America, religious conservatives are thirty to forty million voters in America. If we make the trade, uh, you know, just speaking descriptively, summarizing his views, if you moved out libertarians and you brought in religious conservatives plus a populist, uh, nationalist, centrist type of a voter, that's actually a better exchange in his mind. So that may be the political calculation. I don't know if that necessarily works. Yeah, I don't think in terms of a a programmatic libertarian understanding, clearly never has dominated the Republican Party or has dominated policies in America. There are certain aspects, I think, of libertarianism post-Cold War, uh, I think an increasing uh, view that they're reacting to sort of a hardened secularism, um, sort of an autonomous uh, individualism that they see particularly in maybe in gay rights decisions or in the the, the rise of sort of the transgenderism thinking. And just that 
we are all we are in America are, are naked individuals and there's no community. And so I think in a way they're they're fooling or trying to find a rhetoric to reinforce that. That's that's my assumption. So first, false. <laughs> I mean, I, I agree that that may be the thinking. Uh, I, I don't accept it. Um, and broad, but broadly, to the extent that uh, conservative nationalists have a uh, policy agenda, yeah. it is uh, it are it's typically in areas where a lot of of rigorous academic work has been done, and mm-hmm. the policies that conservative nationalists are proposing have, at least within the academic community, have been rejected. Now talk about that because I'm I don't I mean. Industrial I'm, policy. Oh, I agree with you on that. Yeah. Uh, the the notion that uh, free trade is what is what has destroyed community. Oh, I, yeah, I agree. In, yeah. But but that but they're driving a policy agenda that is basically we need protectionism. We need to focus on uh, the worker. That needs to be the most Im- important thing. And uh, I, I, it, it it just seems that this particular movement isn't as well thought out as maybe it ought to be. I think that's, I think there's a lot of truth to that. There is, um, yeah, there's a lot of energy and I'm not sure, even at the National Conservatism Conference, if you looked at the panels, uh, different panels, immigration, uh, I debated Orrin Cass on industrial policy, um, their panels on foreign policy, things like that. It seemed to me, I saw a group, at least in the National Conservatism would be sort of intellectual leaders still thinking uh, in many ways about what they want to promote or articulate policy-wise. Now, trade and industrial policy, I think that that was very clear to me, a hostility to markets, which I saw. But beyond that, I'm not, it's not exactly clear to me where it's going to go. How much of this is opportunistic? That is, that is you, know, you know, like I said, libertarians never have any hope of winning any kind of election ever anywhere. But um, this is a group of people who are very interested, and I don't. I don't want to be unfair to them because obviously, when you have a lot of people and a new thing uh, that is emerging or a new consensus emerging, that consensus has to actually emerge, and I don't think it has yet, right? Um, but uh, to what extent is that we need to capture votes? This is a way to capture votes. We need to do this. Well, I think in. In, in certain respects, that always happens in politics. I mean, there's always an opportunity. There's always a motive. And there are always ideas that maybe haven't been a part of the debate, but that one could bring in. And so there's always high ground and low ground. Low ground, need to win elections. High ground, uh, here are some principles. Uh, you know, I mean, I've often thought, you know, with the industrial policy, I mean, I've, I've, um, uh, I've been in debates on this a couple of times now, and, and I'm, I'm starting to come to the conclusion this is a political strategy in search of a policy solution uh, in the sense of trying to find something that's going to work for a lot of different voters in these crucial states, uh, particularly in the Electoral College. Um, that, that being said, um, opportunism is a part of politics. It's certainly a part of democratic politics. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong or that the ideas uh, should not be considered to be a part of a, a healthy debate. Um, and, and clearly, it is the case within the Republican Party. Uh, I would argue there was no other candidate that could have beaten Hillary Clinton other than Donald Trump in 2016. I think the and, reverse and so might if, also be true. And so if you are, uh, well, that may be true as well, uh, but it is what it is. Uh, and you know, if you are committed to uh, 
conservatism uh, to the Republican Party, then you you maybe start to think, did we miss something? Were you know were we too programmatic, too ideological? And a lot of people, I think. I mean, I almost wonder. Free trade became so dominant within Republican, at least, at least conservative intellectuals. I think I would argue largely, and I, I wonder if maybe there's just a forgetting of the arguments, and and now industrial policy has reemerged, and we forgot all the reasons why we discarded that 30 years ago. So my hope is a new learning or a relearning process will happen, and and the wisdom, the old wisdom, will reemerge again. If any conservative nationalists are listening to this, begin with Cordell Hull in the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration for your studies of freedom of trade in the United uh, with the United States. For libertarians, um, Anthony Comegna, who uh, listeners will be aware of, has appeared uh, many times on this podcast, and it, uh, his one of his key points is that libertarians need to once and for all divorce themselves completely from conservatism. Uh, conservatives, I think, for a long time viewed libertarians as a part, a subset of the conservative movement. And I think popular culture has also uh, sort of imposed that idea in a way. Um, but if you see, if you watch the conservative nationalists discuss with one another, there's no love lost there. And there uh, is it. If you were a libertarian, uh, would you say, "Yeah, the conservatives don't want us"? Well, I'm a conservative who's learned a lot from libertarians, so I, I struggle to make sense of either critique. Both sound extreme, and both sound. I mean, particularly, we're in a context, we're in a country with a history and a constitution and movement of ideas. And it seems to me libertarianism, or what we might think of as libertarianism um, and conservatism, are intertwined in the sense that both have something to say about conserving our uh, the best of our American constitutional heritage. Um, so I, 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 don't, I don't think a divorce, I mean, at the level of ideas, one can clearly articulate a divorce and one can clearly bring up Frank uh, Meyer's conservative fusionism project from you know, five decades ago and say this is just pasted and glued together and doesn't ultimately have a, a coherent synthesis to offer. But I think at the level of American life, of American practical democratic life, it has a lot to contribute and say. Uh, it, it, but what it does need to, uh, it has to be rearticulated. And it has to be related to a new situation and a new context, which is not 1979. It's it's 2019 going into the 2020 election. My sense too is, you know, I started to think after the election in 2017 that Donald Trump and I, I didn't call it national conservatism, but you know, Trumpian thinking, Trumpian conservatism, had perhaps enlarged the map for Republicans. And I no longer think that. And um, one or two federal electoral drubbings under this sort of a strategy or style will probably reorient things uh, dramatically. Richard Reich is editor of Law and Liberty and host of the Liberty Law Talk podcast. We spoke last week in Carmel, Indiana. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us and suggest show topics on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>